Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sociology, where each episode we talk to the author of a recently published sociology book. My name is David Philippi, and for this episode, I talk to Peter Baer, author of Hannah Arendt, Totalitarianism and the Social Sciences, published by Stanford University Press. In The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt looked at the destruction and carnage brought about by German National Socialism and Russian Bolshevism and claimed that totalitarianism was entirely unprecedented. She was highly critical of the social sciences for failing to recognize totalitarianism as something radically new, and thought that this failure was indicative of some fundamental flaws of social science. By reconstructing a dialogue between Arendt and some of the most prominent and insightful social scientists of her day, Peter Baer provides a more nuanced view of totalitarianism, and reveals how some of Arendt's criticisms were on point, while others miss the mark. In the process, Baer considers what it means to call an event unprecedented, and concludes by asking whether this conversation between Hannah Arendt and the social sciences might help us better understand Islamist terrorism. Hope you enjoy listening. So I'm talking to Peter Baer, and the title of his book is Hannah Arendt, Totalitarianism and the Social Sciences. Thank you very much for agreeing to do the interview. Thank you, David. Um, now, the title of the book obviously tells us uh, a little bit about what the book is about, um, but could you just give us a little bit of background about Hannah Arendt that might help those who aren't familiar understand why this topic, totalitarianism, was of such personal importance to her? Yeah, sure. Well, Hannah Arendt was a, a German-Jewish intellectual. She studied under Heidegger and Jaspers in Germany and as a young woman was not a political person at all. Uh, but she found she found herself becoming political in the in the 1930s as the, the Nazi movement accelerated. And she got into various kinds of Zionist activities there and was investigated briefly by the Gestapo and decided at that stage, this was 1933, to flee Germany. She ended up in Paris for a while, and then when the the war broke out, she left Paris and came to the United States. And it was in the United States that she set to work in writing what is probably her, her greatest work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which was published in 1951, and this book sought to come to terms with the enormity of uh, not only the what we now call the, the Holocaust, but also the consequences of Stalinism for the Russian people, for the region around Russia, and for the whole world. Okay, and it also is very clear in your introduction that uh, it seemed it seemed to me reading the book that it was kind of a something that you've probably thought about writing about for a long time and was of great personal interest, but also addresses 
some of the questions that tend to come up, criticisms that tend to come up uh, with the social sciences in general. Uh, you call yourself a critical admirer and say that you were trained in the tradition that she, she being Hannah Arendt, distrusted. So could you just talk a little bit about your motivations for writing the book? Well, there were several motivations, really. One motivation was Hannah Arendt herself, because I found her to be such an original thinker. And she was the kind of thinker that a person like me likes to read. A great deal of what comes out in the social and political sciences today is extremely platitudinous, in my view. And one of the reasons for that is that it's heavily ideological. And ideological work tends to cleave to fairly straightforward ideas and categories. So, for example, in sociology right now, we have the trinity of class, race, and gender, these categories through which every human experience is endlessly recycled. Now, Hannah Arendt was emphatically not a thinker in that mold. She was not concerned with solidarity politics which does not mean that she did not feel solidarity for the Jews or father oppressed peoples, but rather she was felt perfectly willing to, to criticize who and whatever according to her own independent reasoning and experience. So I liked thinkers like that. When I came across Arendt belatedly, I wanted to know more about her. And then once I began to read her, I started to see the silhouette of her critique of the social sciences. So why don't you describe for us how she goes about defining, or I'm not, I'm not sure I would say defining totalitarianism, but um, what she has to say about totalitarianism. Well, she says that totalitarianism is something that is unprecedented. And she means that quite literally. She means, in other words, that totalitarianism is not something to be historically derived from, say, German history or going back to Luther's time, or it's not something to be derived from Tsarist Russia, that it really is a caesura. It's a, it's a rupture, which she locates um, largely after the First World War. But the point of totalitarianism being unprecedented for her was that it was gravely mistaken to try and see totalitarianism as, as another kind of dictatorship or another kind of uh, absolutism or tyranny or despotism. These were all regime types which had their place in history and which could be characterized by various properties. But totalitarianism was really different from all of those. And it was in order to grasp this originality and uniqueness that she wrote her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Okay, and it is through, at least in part, through this claim that totalitarianism was something unprecedented that she seems to most vehemently criticize the social sciences, which as you mentioned, um, try to place these two regimes, the, the Nazi and Bolshevik regimes, in a kind of lineage or um, to fit them to some kind of ideal type. So why don't you uh, talk about some of those specific criticisms and with some of the social scientists that you mentioned in the book? 
Well, the, the social scientists in the book that I look at are not really her main object of critique, right. except for one of them, which is uh, Jules Monoro, mm -hmm. the French thinker. But it's her, her bete noire really is, is Karl Mannheim and his, uh, his disciples, particularly Hans Goethe, who at the time that she was writing was, was also a, a German refugee. And there were many things that she disliked. Some of this dislike, I think, was not entirely balanced or well-informed. Part of my book is to say that although Hannah Arendt gets many things right about the social sciences, she is often in danger of drifting into a caricature. In fact, more than a danger, she drifts into it. But she dislikes the way in which the fact-value dichotomy is used, She reads the ideal types, not exactly accurately, because for Weber, at least, the whole point of constructing ideal types is to understand specificity. But the way she understands the ideal type is that ideal types domesticate things that are, are new into the already known. And she also doesn't like what she calls the functionalization of concepts, by which she means the, the inability to see things in their uniqueness and instead to kind of shuffle um, different terms and concepts as if they are really referring to, to one basic thing. Mm -hmm. And now how does her work manage to point out some of the, the flaws? You mentioned these three, um, value neutrality, functionalism, and the ideal types. How does she manage to kind of point out some of the flaws in that, in that kind of work um, that was going on in the social sciences? Well, she sees it as unimaginative, and she sees it as, as making a series of mistakes, particularly conflating these various regimes that we talked about earlier. Again and again, she comes back to the point, from her argument anyway, that social science is ill-equipped to deal with specificity. So, for instance... Totalitarianism, she says, is specific because it creates an entirely new class of enemy, the objective enemy, the enemy of the people. The objective enemy or the enemy of the people is category. So totalitarian regimes, unlike military hunters or dictatorships, don't simply go after the conscious and deliberate opponents of the regime. Uh, totalitarianism doesn't really start, in her view, at that level. It starts once the, the opponents, the visible opponents, the deliberate opponents of the regime have been eliminated. Instead, what it does is totalitarianism creates these categories of enemies. So it's not what you do that counts. It's, it's who you are, whether you are a Jew or a, or a Kulak uh, or a Jehovah's Witness or whatever it is. And she argues that totalitarianism keeps moving because it continues to generate these new enemies. So she says that sociology didn't see that, or if it, if it saw it, it did not focus on it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions that I had in reading was about her description of the masses in societies that were under totalitarian regimes because it seemed to me at least in part 
that the existence of these masses was something that was very obviously historically conditioned. And while the regime, you know, she makes the claim that the regime itself or the regime type is unprecedented and disconnected from history in that way, this idea of the masses seems pretty clearly to be part of a, an historical argument. It's part of a historical argument, and in a way, it is, uh, it is the most cliched part of, of a whole discussion, because it's cliched not in the sense that she doesn't do anything with this concept, but rather it comes out of a stock series of concepts which were available to her at the time, and which seem in somewhat in tension with her idea to discuss things in a highly original way. After all, mass society was a major topos of, of the 1950s. But she says about the masses that the masses are created in two different ways, or rather they exist in two different ways under totalitarian systems. She says that Stalin created masses because Stalin pulverized various kinds of associations that were extant in Russia and its environs. Whereas in the National Socialist case, Hitler inherited masses, as it were, because the masses had been created by the Great Depression and by the collapse of, uh, of European empires. But this is an unsatisfactory account of totalitarianism because, as many people have shown, if we focus now just on, the, on Nazi Germany, is that there weren't really masses in her sense of totally rootless people, or if they were, these were not the stalwarts of, of the regime. Somebody had, has said that civil society can be evil. We tend to think of civil society as good, but there was, there was a lot of civil society in Germany during the 20s and 30s when National Socialism was on the rise. There were various clubs, there were various churches, various associations, and it was these, these pillars, that uh, National Socialism managed to mobilize and conquer. But the idea of a totally atomized people, which is the idea she often conveys in the origins of totalitarianism, is historically mistaken. Mm -hmm. Another question that I had, um, I know being that she was not a sociologist and her concerns might not have been the same, but I was wondering about even the use of the term totalitarian to, um, to deal with what seemed to me pretty significantly different cases between Germany and, and Russia. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I note that of the sociologists that I look at in the book, David Riesman, Raymond Aron, Jules Monoro principally, all of them had no problem with totalitarianism as a term or a concept. It's worth pointing that out because many people, including many sociologists and political scientists, have disliked that term for a very long time. They often criticized it as a, as a Cold War concept or whatever. But the sociologists with, with whom Arendt sparred or whom she castigated accepted the concept in the same way that she did. So 
they may have used it in a in a slightly different way at times, but there was no contentiousness among them that totalitarianism was a bad concept. They thought it was a good concept. Mm -hmm. So now this comes to your question about, well, is it a good concept? Because might it not blur two very different sorts of formations? And there are criticisms along those lines, which I can come to, but I come back to the point that there are things about those formations which for our end, and I think for her sociological interlocutors, were definitive of a regime that had not really been seen before. One I already mentioned, this phenomenon of objective enemies, death by category, in other words. But the other one was that totalitarian formations, unlike dictatorships and tyrannies and despotisms and military juntas and the like, totalitarian formations put a premium on movement. Let me put it this way. Military hunters or dictatorships can be brought to power by social movements, but once they are in power, they tend to integrate those movements into the state and thereby pacify them and routinize them so that the movement aspect becomes emasculated. Whereas in totalitarian regimes, Arendt says, the regime contains within it the movement. The movement moves the, the regime. And this is shown by never-ending wars, ceaseless turbulence, purges, this kind of thing, which never allow the society ever to really settle down and to become routinized. And she thought that this was another of these unique characteristics or properties of totalitarian regimes. And I, I think that the sociologists who I look at would have agreed with her. And all of them saw that on these two lines, looking at objective enemies and looking at movement, that Arendt had identified something sui generis about totalitarianism and as such, irreducible to other regime types. So to that extent, they were in agreement. Mm -hmm. Well, now that you've started talking about this dialogue or debate between Hannah Arendt and you know the sociologists, social scientists that you write about in the book, you focus on three. Um, tell us a little bit about each one and um, what we can learn from this dialogue because I think what you do very well is balance what each side kind of has to offer and, and some of the valid criticisms coming from each side. So, yeah, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? Okay, well, let's start with David Reisman. David Reisman read the third part of Origins of Totalitarianism in Draft in the late 1940s. And there was a spirited exchange between Riesman and Arendt through a series of letters, and they make fascinating reading. And he was a, he was a great admirer of, of Arendt's, at least in this period. But even in the early exchanges, 
he taxes her for things that he finds problematic. For instance, he thinks that her view of the total penetration of totalitarian societies by terror is inaccurate. He had been in Russia in, um, in the early 30s and had noticed that far from there being total terror and far from there being a strongly ideological view among the inhabitants, he found corruption, he found cynicism, and he thought that corruption and cynicism were proof positive of the lack of ideological penetration of totalitarian subjects. And in that light as well, he argued against her that the people who live under terror are able to adapt to it in a number of creative ways by playing roles of various types and of, of hiding their skepticism or lack of enthusiasm. And he thought that Hannah Arendt did not really pay much attention to the social dramaturgical aspects of society. And I think in that he had a very, very good point. You know, we don't learn much about society under totalitarianism in Hannah Arendt's view. So that's David Reisman. But I think that I will bore your listeners if I simply go on with a very long spiel on all three. Was there anything that you wanted to ask in particular about Reisman to, to interrupt me? Well, it actually gets to my earlier question because that point that he's making seems to be, and I could be wrong, but seems to be more specific to the communist regime in Russia, especially being that it was um, longer running, so that kind of the time or necessity for, for people to adapt um, was different. So I think it seems that while they may not have been contending the term totalitarianism, um, each thinker was more concerned with one uh, one of the two regimes rather than both of them generally. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But even if we were to think of, of Nazi Germany, which is not the case, as I recall anyway, that David Reisman concentrates on, we can still give it a kind of a... Riesmannian twist, because what we know about Nazi Germany today is that most Germans living at that time did not think that they were living under a totalitarian system. They didn't think that they were living under a oppressive system. They had a number of, of freedoms, provided that they were not Jews or communists. Um, they were largely left alone. For instance, we have detailed studies on the Gestapo in Cologne and elsewhere, and we find from these studies that very early on the Gestapo learned to distinguish between what they considered to be determined foes of the regime and just grumblers. Uh, you weren't going to pick up somebody who made a, a bad joke about the Fuhrer or who complained about this, that, and the other. And therefore, again, you know, the idea that the whole of, of German society was somehow uh, penetrated by totalitarian terror does not really work that well. And it is consistent 
with Riesman's more nuanced view of totalitarian conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next sociologist that you look at is Ramon Aron, and if I'm not mistaken, you, you're a little bit more of a specialist on him? Well, I, I just became a great reader of, mm. of his work as a result of the project, but I, I like him enormously, as, as, I, as I do David Reisman, but Aron seems to me uh, in a class of his own. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll refer to the book here. You write that it, it's not just Hannah Arendt's fascination with the monsters she takes from reality uh, that is disturbing to our own. It is also a logical imagination that exaggerates their characteristics to the point of perfection. Um, could you describe that criticism or elaborate on that point? I'm not really sure whether I can very well because I, I'm not sure whether I really understand it myself. But to the extent to which I do, I would say that Aaron thought that there was a, a certain degree of perversity in, in Hannah Arendt's portraits, that in a way she got into them too, too deeply, and that she had a, a tendency to deliberately court being provocative. And, mm-hmm. you know, that her counterintuition is pressed too far and that um, this is something which he found grating. But he also juxtaposes this to something else, which is her constant refrain, not only in the origins of totalitarianism, but also in other work, that totalitarianism is almost inexplicable that it is so deeply puzzling that we don't really have the categories to express it. And he saw that as a kind of a defeatism. He said, well, you know, there are many categories within which we can understand totalitarianism. And by the way, there is far more continuity with other kinds of regime that than aren't... Uh, Believes you'll remember that I said earlier that she constantly stresses the the sui generis aspect, the originality of totalitarianism. And uh, Aron says, "Well, yeah, in some ways it was, but in other ways it wasn't, because the kind of frenzy you find in conditions of totalitarianism is uncannily similar to revolutionary frenzy more generally." the Jacobin, French revolutionaries, the, the Puritans and others, and that therefore there was more continuity in that sense than Arendt uh, gave credit for, and also that there was another kind of logic which she had not considered properly, which is to say that from the standpoint of the actors rather than the standpoint of the victims, from the standpoint of actors, there was a kind of logicality, a rationality, as it were, however perverted, to totalitarianism. Now, here he doesn't really look at the German case, which is a weak spot, and I mentioned that in my book. But as far as Bolshevik conditions, he says, there really was a kind of rationality to modernization. One could understand why people would want to modernize and why they would 
need to do it violently after their radical ideology had been rejected. So in other words, he tries to introduce more historicity into totalitarianism than Arendt does herself. Mm-hmm. Now, the one, um, the main point that he sees distinguishing between totalitarian and, and democratic governments has to do with whether there's only one party or multiple parties. Um, now, I realize that the aim of your book is not for you to pronounce judgment, really, in either direction, um, but how do you feel about this distinction that he makes? I think it's a good distinction in many ways. The distinction is that once you know that a political system is centered on a monopolistic party, then a lot can be derived from it. You can derive from it the fact that by definition there is going to be no competition between and among parties, that there are going to be severe constraints on association, that there is going to be censorship and so on and so forth. So to the extent to which totalitarian regimes were based on monopolistic parties, there is a lot of veracity in what Aran says. But I do feel that there is something unsatisfactory in the argument because we know how political parties work, we know how they can become dysfunctional, but there seems to be a great leap from that to the reality of totalitarianism itself. Why the need for objective enemies? Why the, the massive slaughter of the Jews? This is a nightmarish world. This, this is a world that we do indeed have great difficulty making sense of rationally. And Aaron tends to overdo that. He, he tries to make it more rational than I think most of us, well, I won't speak for most of us because I don't know who us is. I just say to myself that I'm not convinced by that, what I consider to be over-rationalization. And with Arendt, we have a strong poetic sense, if I can put it that way. She is able, through her writing and through the kinds of juxtapositions that, Aaron, that, that Raymond Aron finds so annoying, she's able to do precisely through those juxtapositions to create this nightmarish sense and a sense that we really have not yet understood totalitarianism and there may always be aspects of it which elude us. Right, and this is... I mean, this has to do with one of her main objectives, which is kind of this ideal of um, dispassionate study, which she feels is essentially morally unacceptable in the case of uh, a subject such as you know these two regimes under which millions died. But I guess the question becomes then, how do you find this balance? Is it left to two different types of writers to do as Arendt does, as you described, the poetic kind of work to try and capture this essence and then the more, um, perhaps just more scientific work of, you know, trying to really look at the historical lineage and um, finding similarities between different cases. Is it possible for for social science to 
capture something which seems so absurd and most of us would say evil. Yeah, well, social scientists are the kind of people who don't like to use terms like evil. After all, one of the worst things you can say today in sociology or in polite discussion is that that person is judgmental. Well, you know, that's a galaxy away from Hannah Arendt. I would add, though, that Hannah Arendt is dispassionate as well. I don't want to imply that her analysis is a flight of fancy. It isn't. Um, she is dispassionate. She is scientific in the sense that she tries to define things and describe things very accurately and to explain them as, as well as she can. The critique of, of social science tends to be that it doesn't grasp the fact that the values, the, the, the emotional side, as it were, is indeed part of the facts to be explained. Um, if you talk about Jews being killed, uh, that's not as good as saying that they were murdered. Mm -hmm. Murdered may be a more emotional term, but it's also more accurate. Right. So she does bring together these uh, poetic and dispassionate aspects, and they can be very striking. She has a dispassionate view of the Jews. She has a dispassionate view of Germany. I mean, if you can imagine a Jewish writer in the in the late 1940s arguing that german culture was not responsible for the the destruction i mean that was an extremely unusual position or her critiques of jewish elders in in the eichmann trial she was capable of being dispassionate standing back some people accused her of being haughty for that very reason mm -hmm. one of the things that comes up, I think, in a few places is that sometimes her criticisms of sociology actually can be applied to her work. Um, at a few points, you mention that she was criticized for not, um, not paying enough attention to the purported system of values that was in place, perhaps because of her emphasis on this movement over doctrine. Um, however, at other points, she is critical of people failing to take seriously what the actors are themselves saying. So how do you reconcile those two, I guess, similar criticisms coming from both sides? Well, the irony here uh, comes up in the chapter in, in, on Jules Monoreau, which is the penultimate chapter of the book. And Hannah Arendt argues in various places that a key debility of the social sciences is that they refuse to take seriously the words of the people they study. And instead of taking these words seriously, the expressed intentions of the actors, they sociologize them, they functionalize them, they reduce them to concepts and see them as epiphenomenal. And uh, she said if people had really listened seriously to what Hitler had said, they wouldn't have been surprised at what he did. If they'd read Mein Kampf carefully, and instead of seeing it as uh, hopeless lunacy, had seen that this was a project, then again, they wouldn't have been surprised at what happened. And she accuses sociologists of this. But I have a little beef with her on this, because I think that 
she does not want to make any room for what other writers on totalitarianism have called political religion. Now, I don't like that term myself. And as you will recall, David, in the book, I provide alternatives to it. Right. But essentially, the idea that these actors with whom we're supposed to be interested, totalitarian actors, used a quasi-religious language, an eschatological language, a language of salvation, of creation, of destruction, of the new man, and so on. And she doesn't really talk a great deal about this, and she is unhappy in ascribing to it any uh, religious vocabulary. But that means that she has to deny at the same time all those actors, and really there are hundreds of them, I cite many of them, who saw people, or, you know, witnesses who, who commented at the time how fervent the believers were, how often they made biblical or other kinds of, of references, the, the uses of religion that they developed, so that if Arendt is going to say that we have to listen to the actual expressions of the actors, and if she is still unwilling to say that there is any quasi-religious element in those sayings, she seems to be in a bit of a fix, in a bit of a contradiction. And that really was the burden of the, the Jules Monroe chapter in the book. Right. It almost seems like with those kind of those kinds of terms, uh, secular religion and, and the others, um, that's an attempt to get at the essence of what's going on, which it seems she does the same thing in many ways, um, that she she'll use the language, use terms in order to to try and kind of get underneath at, at what's really happening. And yet it, she's critical of others when it seems they're trying to do the same thing. And you also point out that she uses the term scientific prophecy, which is, you know, in many ways uh, reminiscent of the idea of secular religion. So this chapter is kind of how you transition into the question of how, how can we define things without combining, I guess, disparate elements. So we have religion, we have ideology. How do, we, how do you define those two things separately? And then how do, you, uh, how do you define things that you observe which seem to be some kind of combination of the two? So why don't you, I guess, talk a little bit about how you think we deal with these, this difficulty, which is, seems to be ever-present in the social sciences, of how to define what we might see as new. Well, before I get to that, let me just say something else about the, the secular religion motif, which she dislikes, because it's worth saying that she makes a lot of good sense here in many respects. Those people who use the concept of secular religion or political religion were in many respects, though not all, precisely trying to get at the novelty of totalitarian formations by using this, this oxymoron, you know, secular religion. And she has some very good grounds in, in rejecting it. It's not that she, she's against oxymorons or thinking in an angular way, as we've seen just the opposite. 
But she wants to say, well, look, you know, if we think of religions, at least in the Western sense, religions are not about mass murder. They are not about societies with no boundaries. They are not institutions or thought systems where there can be no forgiveness. And therefore, to, to bring something as radically evil as totalitarianism into congruence with religion, particularly revealed religion as she understands it, is for her absurd. And it was an absurdity she thought that was typical of the social sciences. So to, to use a term like secular religion, right, you just described some of the major problems with mm -hmm. that. So how can social scientists kind of set about trying to define things in, in ways that, that make them understandable and, and where you can make comparisons and understand relationships, but which aren't so... Uh, either, I guess, too broad or too specific. A good way to proceed analytically is to follow Arendt in making distinctions among things. After all, a major criticism for her of social sciences, and not just them, was their conflation. And to make distinctions is something which alerts us immediately to the complexity of the phenomenon that we may be looking at. I mean, if you think of today, think of the use of the term diversity. Diversity has become a cliche. It's, a, it's a really an idealization of multiculturalism, but it is invoked here, there, and everywhere. But when we affirm diversity, what, we, what do we mean by it? What do we mean by diversity when we affirm it? We might want to make several distinctions. Is diversity the same as plurality? Is it the same as pluralism? Is it the same as variety? If it's the same as pluralism, are we talking about political pluralism, social pluralism, axiological pluralism, and so on? So here we have the, the philosophical side coming in uh, into social scientific analysis, saying, you know, be clearer about these specific things that, that you're looking at. And um, be careful that your categories do not hide more than they reveal. Mm -hmm. And in that spirit, in the, in the final chapter of the book, I try and consider modern radical Islam. Right, and that, it's such an interesting way to conclude. Um, I'll, I'll read these two key questions which you, I guess, pose for yourself, first of all. To what extent is radical Islamism similar to and different from totalitarianism? Is it an unprecedented phenomenon in danger, as some earlier observers claim totalitarianism to be? Um, so how do you at least tentatively answer those questions? It seemed to me that in a book dealing with Hannah Arendt and dealing in particular with her argument about unprecedented events, and considering, too, that the unprecedented event, unprecedented event that uh, she was interested in was totalitarianism, its terror and ideology, that it would be cowardly, not at the end of this book, to ask some hard questions about the kinds of terror that we witness in today's world. After all, 
all this philosophizing was was supposed to to do something. It was supposed to produce some clarity about our current position. Now, the current position in our end's time was the 40s and the 50s. Well, of course, one one way of approaching radical Islam would be to use the concept of totalitarianism itself. But that seemed to me to be an Arendtian because it seemed to be in danger of, again, domesticating something which may be new into something which was now established and already known. And so I try and look at the ways in which one could say that it is totalitarian, but also the way that it seems to suggest something else, and whether this something else comprises elements which could be said to be, in their combination, unprecedented. And I mention a number of these things, and I'm sorry I can't remember them all, but two that I do recall saying is that unlike totalitarian states, the main threat today is from non-state actors. States are also a major threat, but states at least have a return address. They can, at least in some cases, be subjected to deterrence, whereas non-state actors have a shadowy address. They are harder to deter. Another fact, of course, is that many of these radical jihadists are people who do not care if they live or die, so that uh, they pose a different order of threat. At least in the case of the Soviet Union, there was a calculated wish to survive and to triumph. And in good part, that was true, at least until the very end, with Nazi Germany. But the most important thing is the combination of that with the commodification of weapons of mass destruction. This is something completely unknown and new. Uh, In the past, states themselves possessed weapons of mass destruction and jealously guarded them. Whereas now we have a a market in weapons of mass destruction and we have the possibility, I would say the likelihood in the next 10 years of there being a use of one of these devices in a Western or other city. Now you pull all those things together and you have something different from what we have seen before. Now to me, as I make plain, it's not, Important whether you call that unprecedented, you might want to call it a mutation of something already known, but it is a specific danger, and it is that danger that modern peoples have to face. And obviously, right now, the last few months, we've seen quite a bit happening in the parts of the world where. I guess these uh, non-state actors are kind of based or roam or however, however you would put it. Um, you know, we may be moving too far away from what you address in the book, but, it, you know, watching the news, I am so, and I, and I think a lot of this has to do with the different language that's being used to try to talk about what's happening with the different popular movements, trying to understand the different, elements of these movements because they're not necessarily coherent except in a desire to you know remove the current leader but is there anything that you might be able to offer as a result of doing the work on this book and 
trying to understand, at the very least, what this might mean, especially with the Western involvement, um, what this might mean for some of these um, radical elements operating there now. Well, we have to retain a sense of complexity about these movements and also a sense of reality about them. There are great hopes invested in some of them, and maybe these hopes will be realized. We, we don't know. But I would say that as well as reading people like Hannah Arendt, something which more people could do is simply travel in the Middle East because you learn a lot from going there. I wrote the last part of the book when I was in Afghanistan. I was there for five weeks a couple of years ago doing some teaching at the American University of Afghanistan in the summer. And um, before that, I traveled down to southern Lebanon, the Hezbollah country. And I've traveled elsewhere, and you learn a, a great deal about the complexity of that region. But that complexity is also pretty frightening. We have to recall that although the uh, regime of um, Mubarak was an oppressive regime, it was a regime which did exercise some control over the most radical elements in that society, in Egypt. Now, does that mean that uh, we should not applaud the, the efforts of people within Egypt to reform it and to challenge his regime? Of course not. But it does mean that we have to have a very, very clear-eyed view about what might come out in Egypt, and it is very possible that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafists will triumph there. Unfortunately, there is a, a considerable secular or moderate Muslim minority in Egypt, which will do its best to stop that eventuality, but it may fail. We also have the complexity that there are different sects in operation. We have, uh, we have Sunnis in, in Egypt, of course. We have Sunnis in the Bahrain um, ruling dynasty, but they're confronted by, by Shiites. We have in Syria an Alawite regime representing only about 10% of the proportion confronted by Shiites. So the Arab world is not a united world. Uh, Muslims are not united. Not only are they separable along um, uh, a spectrum of, of moderation and extremism, but they're also separable according to these various sects. So it's very difficult for us to be able to, to predict what's going to happen there. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you know, there are these hopes and I guess one of the questions that I had when you're talking about, um, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Jules Monoron. Yeah, Monoron, yeah. Right. So he writes that his, um, his sociology and psychology of communism uh, was political uh, intervention as well as scientific work. Um, do you believe that sociology can be both political intervention, and scientific work? I'm not sure. I, I don't see any real compelling signs of it. We have in sociology right now 
a, a regnant movement called public sociology, which has come out of the American Sociological Association. But this is a kind of warmed up Marxism. It's kind of Marxism burlesque, which for somebody like me, and I think for a number of other people in sociology, is precisely where we do not want to go. I notice, for instance, that public sociology seems to take no interest in conservative Americans, even though conservative Americans probably constitute the, uh, the majority of the public. I notice also that American Sociological Association conferences, when they invite their plenary speakers and their outside speakers, you don't have conservatives there. So um, anybody who would be you know, against abortion or who would be a very affirmative Christian who would have problems with a uh, gay marriage or whatever is largely ruled out of court by public sociology except as, a, as an object of derision to be investigated. So I say that because, you know, to give you some indication that I don't think sociologists do very well in the political intervention stakes. I'm a Weberian on this. I think that we, we all do best by trying to provide analyses which are carefully documented and which are as restrained as our emotions can make them, um, and to try and do good scientific work. We are then free to, to use those scientific results to advance political causes. But to my great regret, that distinction is really made in contemporary sociology. Well, I thank you for talking to me, and I certainly enjoyed reading the book. It's a fairly slim volume, so anyone interested in reading shouldn't hesitate because of length, uh, but you managed to do quite a lot in there, and I look forward to uh, what else you might come out with in the coming years. So thank you very much, and uh, perhaps we'll speak again. Well, thank you very much for, for reading the book, but even more for taking the trouble to set up this interview and to invest your time in it. Thanks a lot, Dave. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this interview with Peter Baer, author of Hannah Arendt's Totalitarianism and the Social Sciences, published by Stanford University Press. I'm David Philippi, and I've been your host for the New Books and Sociology podcast, part of the New Books Network. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and decided to tune in again. 